So I was trying to be sneaky and not put my PowerPoint on before time too early, but some people caught me and they looked back there and they said, 60 slides. <laughs> but you didn't know that this morning was 60 slides too, so we'll make, we'll make, make it through in about 25, 30 minutes. But welcome back. I hope that as we go through these things this afternoon that uh, they'll build your faith, that they'll build your confidence in the fact that the Bible that you hold is the original, authentic, whatever you want to, however you want to put it, it is the original Word of God. This morning we talked about the Bible being a book that was written over a long period of time across 40 different generations. 40 different people wrote the Bible was written in different places at different times, different moods, three different continents, three different languages, and about an innumerable amount of different topics. Yet in all that, there was continuity, that everyone agreed on everything. So the Bible isn't just another book, and I hope that, that as we go through the study this afternoon, that it will, that, that phrase, the Bible is just not another book, will really ring true to you. This morning we talked about the fact that it, it was inspired by God himself. And that's what leads it to be authentic. And that's the, why we have it the way that we do today. So the, the quote that we're going to try and combat this afternoon is, The Bible has changed through the years, so what we have isn't true to the original. And that's something that people have concocted in their mind, that, that the Bible over the last 2,000 years has changed. And what the authors originally intended back 2,000 years ago have changed, and that's not what they mean anymore. And I want you to know that this is completely false, and I hope that I can prove that to you this afternoon as we go through this, because there's a, a, a ton of evidence, there's an abundant amount of evidence that shows that the Bible is authentic, and what we have is truly what was meant by the original writers. We're going to talk about the authentic, authenticity and reliability of the Bible. This is a... Uh, papyrus scroll from about 200 AD, so about 150 years after John was written, here's a copy, a manuscript of that, of that writing. And as you can see, that's not a piece of white paper that a printer printed out. This was handwritten. This entire book of John that we have here was handwritten. And that, that person would have to find their piece of material they were going to write this on. They were going to have to have something to write it with. And then they had to have something to copy it from. And we're going to talk about that process this afternoon and how tedious it was. And I hope that you can see how difficult this process was for these original, uh, these original writers. And I hope that it will give you a great sense of, of awe in the fact that we have any of these fragments from 200 or 2,000 years ago. So how did we get the Bible? Well, we talked about the original writers this morning, how they were inspired. And all these original writers pinned down their original letters, and they distributed it, them to different churches. And then these, letter, these letters that they wrote were written on papyrus. And papyrus was a, it was a writing material that they got from the reeds of rivers. It was a plant. And so they, would, they had this, this way that they rolled these plants out, and they were able to then write on them after these papyrus uh, scrolls or these papyrus leaves had been uh, dried. And so uh, after that, because they knew that these, these letters were brittle, 
they were going to need to be distributed throughout the world, they would then make copies of these original letters. So they would take this, this message from Paul, this message from Luke, this message from John, and they would copy that so that there wasn't just one copy of it. They wanted the whole world to be able to have it. But the problem is these two were written on papyrus, and that papyrus, that plant, degrades very quickly. It's very brittle and, and can very quickly uh, degrade and fade out. And so beginning in the 4th century, so about 300 years or so after Christ uh, died, and after these original letters were penned, they switched to using parchment instead of this papyrus. They found out these new techniques, these new methods for making paper, and they started to use that because they were a lot more durable and they'd last a lot longer. So this, this parchment, this also known as vellum, had to be hand fabricated one piece at a time. They couldn't just go to Walmart and buy a stack of 500 pieces of paper. They had to very carefully create these pieces of parchment. And they were made, this, this parchment was made from calf skin. There's a quote about that creation. To make one sheet of vellum or one sheet of parchment, a parchmenter would start with the skin of a calf and soak it in running water overnight. It would then be put into lime water for about a week then brought out and scraped for a day or two, soaked in lime and water a second time, and scraped again. Finally, it would be put back in the clean running water for two days, then mounted on a frame and scraped again for several days. As it dried while being scraped clean, the parchmenter would then sand it and pumice it. This whole effort might take two or three weeks, all of this for one single sheet of vellum or parchment. So that was what the process, just to get one sheet. And... This would be done over and over and over again. And there might, this might be someone's only job was just to make parchment all, of the, all, all day long, and that was their job. I did some research, and about 400 animals would be used just for one Bible. And they had to do this over and over again to get about 2,000 pages. And so you can ima imagine the amount of manpower, the amount of time, just to make one Bible. It's, it's really amazing that we have as many Bibles and Bible manuscript copies that we do. They also had to have a writing utensil. Uh, they didn't just get their G2 pen. I don't know if you've ever used a G2 pen, but those are the way to go. <laughs> they didn't have one of those. They had to go and they had to, as we'll see, uh, get these quills. Quills were, used large, quills were usually made from the outer feathers of a large bird, a goose or swan. The chosen feathers, only a few, five to 10 per bird were usable. They'd be plucked. The barbs would then be scraped clean. The remaining shaft would be hardened by heating and cooling in a sand pit. The remaining hide would be scraped off. The tip would be cut at an angle and then carefully split. This whole process would take maybe a day for 10 or 20 quills. A scribe would continuously sharpen the quills in the quills in throughout the days writing and one the, throughout the days writing and one might last a single day. And so you would probably go through several hundred quills as you were copying the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that just gives you the, the background to how difficult it would be for someone in this time to make that. It wasn't until 14, 1,500 years later that the printing press was made available to uh, allow for the rapid copy, copy of Bibles. They, were, they had to be handwritten and hand copied. So the copyist, that would, like, like I talked about, the copyist would then hand copy each letter ensuring that it was accurate. And you can go back and you can read how exactly they did this, how exactly they knew that they were being perfect, that they were being accurate in what they were copying. It's really interesting uh, when you go back and read that. But that was their job. That was their task in life 
and they were very perfect at what they did, as we'll see. And I, I did, did some research, and back then, if you were practiced up and you knew exactly how to sharpen your quill and had your paper ready to go, it would take about three to four months for one person to write the entire Bible. That's someone that, that did it on a daily basis. There was a guy named Philip Patterson back in, oh, it was probably six years ago or so, and he actually hand-wrote the entire Bible. And he did this for, uh, for four years. It took him four years to do this. And he worked between six to 14 hours a day. He'd do it from when he got up until he went to bed. And that's all he did. And he would, the way he did it is he would hand, he'd, he'd scroll on that sheet of paper. He did it on a blank sheet of paper just to make it as authentic as he could. He would draw these lines, write his passage out, and then he would erase the line. That's what they would have to do back in, back in the days to make sure everything uh, was straight. And so incredible accuracy and an incredible amount of time went into producing and copying the Bible that we have today. So this year-long process would need to be done every time they wanted another Bible. And so that's why people didn't have Bibles. It's because of the, the tremendous amount of time, the tremendous amount of effort that went into to fabricating one of these. And we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit later, uh, how many manuscripts that there were. And it's crazy to think about how many of those manuscripts that we have uh, in relation to how many Bibles that could have been produced back in, back in this time. So this afternoon, I want to talk to you about two things, and two things that will help determine the authenticity and trustworthiness of the, two, of the New Testament. The first one is you need to have a complete text that is original and authentic. How many remaining texts do we have that's reliable? I want to go over that here in just a minute. And then the second part is you need a translation process that works and is accurate. So it, it wouldn't do you any good if you had the original word if you didn't know how to translate it. So we'll talk about that second. So how do we know that someone didn't rewrite the New Testament to fit their standards in about 1080 or 1,000 thousand years after it was written? Well, I'm going to tell you, the New Testament and the Old Testament have been authentically and accurately pieced together. And over time, as we'll look at a, a couple of examples, there have been many thousands of archaeological digs that have yielded pieces of parchment and pieces of the original uh, part of the original papyrus scrolls of these copyists and so we'll be able to look at that so when you look at the biblical manuscript manuscript just means a copy and so when you look at the biblical copies of these original letters there's been 128 original greek papyrus fragments and those papyrus fragments if you remember were the creation of paper out of plants and so those plants they didn't last that long but it's amazing that we still have 128 of those still remaining. Here's an example of one of those fragments. You can see not much is left there, but this is a, a copy of out of a piece of the book of John. And that was from about AD 150 or so. Papyrus P98, that's a piece out of Revelation. That was from about that same time in the second century. Papyrus P52, this is the oldest known manuscript that we have. And it dates somewhere about 70 years after the book of John was actually written. It's the earliest known one uh, in existence. In Papyrus P104, it was a Matthew, a copy out of the book of Matthew from about the second century. And the neat thing about all this is it's always changing. Every time they do an archaeological dig and they find something new, they can constantly be reevaluating and making sure that what is written here accurately ma matches the New Testament that we have now. 
This is another papyrus fragment, the one that I showed earlier. This is actually um, almost the entire book of John that was written on papyrus. And so it's been preserved amazingly well for being about 1,800 years old. So uh, we, those, those were the papyrus fragments made out of, uh, of plants. And then right now there's about 5,828 New Testament Greek parchment manuscripts. Those are the ones that are made out of calf skin. And they started using that in about the fourth century. And here's some examples of these. And you, you can find all of these scanned in online if you want to go and you can actually look at the art that's in these books. And you can, you can look at the handwriting and see how, how beautiful and how accurate it really is. So Codex Beze, that's basically a, a codex is another word for a complete manuscript or complete copy. So Codex Beze, was, it, it was written with the four Gospels, Acts, and Third John. And it's all one complete book. It's bound like you can see. That was written about the fourth century, so around 350 AD. And it's 854 pages long. Codex Washingtonianus, something like that. It's four Gospels, so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it dates to about the 4th century, about the same time, and it's 187 pages. Codex Sinopinesis, uh, Matthew's Gospel, it was written about the 6th century, and the neat thing about this book is it was written in, in entirely gold ink. And that gold ink has been preserved. And you can see there's just a good example of some of the art that these copyists would put into their, put into their books as they wrote them. And there's one last one. This is Paul's letter, some of, or a, a complete compilation of Paul's letters. And this dates to about the 9th century. And that's about 99 pages long. So you can see the preservation in this. All this is written on, on calfskin, not, not the sheets of paper that we have now. Um, and it's all been hand-copied hand, hand with ink from quills. So it's really amazing, really neat to look at those. And I'd encourage you to go look at those online. So um, we have 128 papyrus fragments, 5,828 parchment manuscript fragments and completions. And then we have 18,524 early translation manuscripts. What that is, is early on, everybody didn't speak Greek and so they would translate that to different uh, languages like Syrian and they would uh, look at those fragments and look at those manuscripts and then compare those to what we have now and there's 18,000 of those. Then if you include all of this that's all the New Testament if you include the Old Testament scrolls there's about 42,000 different manuscripts of the Old Testament and if you combine all of that up we have 66,362 total manuscript evidences that have been preserved for thousands and thousands of years. And it's really amazing. And we'll talk a little bit more about one of these specific digs here in a little bit. So Plato the Elder, or sorry, Plato and Pliny the Elder and Caesar and Homer, these are all historians that we have documented throughout time. And the world views these as accurate. They've, they view these as authentic pieces of literature. They don't question it. They don't question the historicity behind them. And you can see the dates that they were written there. And we talked about the manuscripts and the number of manuscripts that, are, uh, that we have of the Bible. But if you look at Plato, for example, we only have 210 manuscripts, yet that's considered authentic and that's considered orig original and true. Plenty of the other, we have 200 of those. Caesar, 251. 
Homer is the most that we have, and it's it's been updated over the last couple of years, and they found a total of 1,800 different uh, manuscripts of those. And then when you look at the, the New Testament and the Old Testament combined, we have 66,000. So there's no comparison. It just it blows the other ones out of the water, and yet the, the Bible is the one that's questioned in all this, that it's not authentic and that it's not original. And so I, th- I think that's a, a very good way to explain that and to show that. So if you took... For example, the 210 manuscripts that that Plato has and th- that have been found and, and documented as being written by Plato, and you piled them up one on top of the other, it'd be about four feet tall. Now, I want you to think in your mind, how many New Testament, how, how, how many feet tall would the New Testament be? And if you got that number, just, just to... For comparison, I want you to think about the World Trade Center, the new World Trade Center that was built. It's 1,776 feet tall. The average classical writer had a pile that was about four feet tall. If you took all the New Testament, you piled it one on top of the other, it would be about one mile tall, 5,280 feet tall of documents that authenticate the Bible that we have today. And then if you look at the Old Testament and... You combine all those, the Old Testament alone is a mile and a half tall. And then you combine those two just to, to show the immense amount of manuscript ac- accuracy that we have. It's two and a half miles, 13,000 feet worth of material that authenticate the Bible. The tallest mountain in New Mexico is 13,000 feet. That just gives you a comparison at how tall and how much and the abundance amount of information that we have that authenticate the New Testament and Old Testament. So up until about 1947, um, scholars thought, yeah, we have a pretty accurate depiction of the Old Testament. We, we know pretty much ex- that this is exactly what it was like 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And this is what the author originally wrote. Well, back in 1947, there were two goat herders that were run- wandering around with their herds around the, the Dead Sea. And they got in their heads that they wanted to play this game. They were bored, and so they picked up some rocks, and they were seeing who could throw the rock the farthest. And they got this rock, and they threw it, and the other one was going to try and do the same thing, and he threw it, and they heard a clink. Come to find out, they walk up there, they find this cave, and they find these clay pots. And they enter this cave, and they, they find this shattered clay pot that the rock had hit full of thousands of scrolls. And over the next 10 years, they find 10 more caves throughout this Qumran area that's just northwest of the Dead Sea. And here's a, a depiction of that. This was back in 1947, and these archaeological digs lasted 10 years until 1957. And there's still some going on today in that area as well. But what they found was thousands and thousands of original Hebrew texts that were written and hidden back in about, I think it was around 70 A.D. And these, these scripts were all about the Old Testament. They were in Hebrew and Aramaic. And they made up 900 different scrolls, and they contained 225 total copies of the New Testament that we have today. And these dated back to the original, so like 400, 500, 600 B.C., way older, two, almost 2,000 years older than what they had at the time. And they compared that. And they, they, they looked at these original texts that were now 2,000 years newer than what they had at the time. They compared that to the New Testament or the Old Testament that we have today, and they found that it matched perfectly. 
And so the New Testament, or the Old Testament, had not changed. When people thought it had changed, over 2,000 years, didn't change any. These people who had copied the Bible down and written manuscript after manuscript were completely accurate in their copying it down. So is the New Testament authentic and complete? When you ask that to several scholars, F.F. Bruce, he was a biblical scholar and, and professor of Greek, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Another one, Bruce Metzger, even if we had no Greek manuscripts today, by piecing together the information from these translations from a relatively early date, we could accurately reproduce the contents of the New Testament. In addition to that, even if we lost all the Greek manuscripts in the early translations, we could still reproduce the contents of the New Testament from the multiplicity of quotations and commentaries, sermons, letters, and so forth of the early church fathers. So they're saying even if we just had the quotes from the early church fathers, we could still accurately piece together uh, the Old and New Testament. Another one, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writing. Sir Frederick George Kenyon, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded, may be regarded as finally established. And here's a, a countless other number of people that you can go and you can look up quotes and you can look up research that they've done on this specific uh, on this specific type of sermon and they'll tell you the exact same thing that the, the New Testament is authentic it's original, it's complete it's exactly what they had back when it was first written So we talked about the first one. You need a complete text that's original, authentic, and I think we've we've established that we have that. Another thing that you need to use, another thing you need to have to determine the authenticity and trustworthiness of the New Testament, is you need a translation process that works and is accurate. If you have that original message, that's in the Greek, unless you can understand it, it doesn't do us any good. It doesn't mean anything to us. So how does that happen? So, uh, the New Testament was first translated by early 2nd century, and many translations quickly followed. This, these translations were spread throughout the world to the people uh, that could understand it. The first Old English translations, English that, that now we couldn't even understand, are found to be around 10th century. And then in the 14th century, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into the English of the 14th century. The problem with these Bibles is that they were translations of translations. And so... You get a lot of, there's things that, that don't transfer completely. When you transfer it into, or when you translate into Syrian and then Syrian into English, it just doesn't make sense. And so it, it meant a lot at, in 1611 that the King James Version, the, the version that we a lot of times read out of today, was not one of those that was translated out of a translation. It was translated originally from the Greek text into English. And so you don't have all these different steps to get through. You have the original to the English. And we're not, we're not going to go over this chart in detail, but it, it's really interesting. Um, there's what was called the Textus Receptus. And the Textus Receptus 
was manuscripts that were from the 10th to 13th century, and there were about eight of them. And these were what the original King James Version was translated from uh, back in 1611. And now after all these archaeological digs and they've been able to compare old, old uh, manuscripts and new manuscripts, they've got about 5,500 of those, 5,800 that we, that we looked at earlier. And this is what's called the New Greek Text. So a lot of the newer translations that we have are out of the New Greek text. So if you look at the, the New Living Translation, the NIV, the CSB, those are translated from the New Greek text. The, the crazy thing about it though, whether you look at the New Greek text or the Textus Receptus, they're virtually, I mean, there's no difference between them. There's just a couple small differences, uh, nothing that makes any big difference in anything. So regardless of, of where it came from, the Greek text that all of the Bibles that we use today are translated uh, from an authentic piece of manuscript, an authentic original word. If you have any questions on that afterwards, let me know. So real quick, I wanted to go over a Bible translation comparison. So you have what's called word for word, and those are the formal uh, translations where it's word by word. So in the Greek, a word is then translated to English. It's a one for one. A thought for thought, you look at the entire statement. It's not a word by word. You look at the statement and they, they look at how does it make sense that we write this. And then it's translated as that to portray the original meaning. And then a paraphrase, and this is, um, this is one of the, it's, it's almost a summary Bible. And it looks at that verse and it, it summarizes that verse, but it doesn't give it the original meaning. So we'll look at that for just a second. Ami Magusta Komerpon. Anybody know what that means? If you speak, this is Spanish, if you didn't know. If you didn't know what that means, you could use a word-for-word -word translation. And if you if you word-for-word -word translated that, Ami Magusta Komerpon would mean to me, me likes to eat bread. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, yeah, we can go and we can look at the root word of ah, and it means to. Me means me. Me means me. Gusta means to like. Comer means to eat. And pawn is bread. So, so we can do that, and we can find the original meaning. Another thing we can do, though, is we can use a thought for thought. And if you look at that as a whole, ah, me, me, gusta, comer, pawn, a thought for thought means I like to eat bread. And that makes sense to us. And so there's, there's use for that, but there's also use for a word-for-word -word translation. And then paraphrase, Ami Magusta Kamer Pon, bread is good. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what you're getting at when, when you say that in a paraphrase. So in specific, here's a, a, good, a good way to look at the, the New Testament when you compare different translations. Word-for-word, uh, King James Version. All scripture is given for inspiration of God, by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that makes sense to us. That's that's what we've read. I've, I've memorized that in the King James Version, and we know what it means. It gives you a good, accurate description of what this author was trying to relay. A thought for thought. It looks at it as a whole, and and how can we make this make complete sense? All scripture is God-breathed and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the same message is received in both of these. And then if you look at a paraphrase, this is from the Message Bible. Every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. 
And you can see that the author, or the, the transcriber here, took liberties in how they wanted that meaning to be conveyed. And so a little bit different there on the paraphrase. So how does God feel about the use of a translation? Have you ever thought about that? What, what would God think if he, I mean, he knows that we're using a translated Bible. What does God think about that? Do you think he approves about this? Or, or do you think that, how many of us, do you know Greek? Anybody in here know Greek? Complete, fluent Greek? No. Do you think God would want us to learn Greek? I think God understands that we're not all going to learn Greek. We know English. That's what this area knows is English. In, in Mexico, they speak Spanish. And throughout the world, different translations and different uh, languages are used. The old, in, the old Testament was originally penned in Hebrew and Aramaic. If you look at Genesis on up to around Micah, it was all in Hebrew. And then after that, it was penned in Aramaic. And so the Old Testament is Hebrew and Aramaic. And then if you, or God understood that the world read and conversed in different languages. And he set it up that way. If you read back in Genesis, he created different languages. And he knew that, that different races communicated different ways. And he, he understood that. God understood that the word would need to be translated in order to be understood by the world. And if you read throughout the Bible, you can understand that and you can see that. Here's your history lesson for the day. So Alexander the Great started up in Macedonia, and, and as he conquered um, Asia and, and Africa, this is the route that he took. And this happened in about uh, third to fourth, fourth to third century BC, and so a long time ago, about 2,500 years ago. And before, down in where it says Tyre, that's a, that's about where all of the uh, where Christ. That's where he grew up, and that's where he uh, did all of his teachings. But as you can see, everything in yellow is what Alexander the Great conquered. And Alexander the Great, there, they spoke Greek, and that was how they communicated. And so over time, all of this area that's in yellow had to speak Greek because that's, who, uh, that's how everything was written. That's how everything was translated back at this time. And so the people who used to speak Hebrew and Aramaic all here now had to learn Greek. And so because of that, this Hebrew and Aramaic Bible that they had, this Old Testament, didn't make any sense to them. And so they had to learn, or they had to translate that to Greek now. And so because of that, we get what's called the Septuagint. You've probably heard of that, that word before. That is a Hebrew and Aramaic translation to Greek. And uh, that, that translation is known as the Septuagint. You can still get copies of those today. So how does Jesus feel about the translation of an Old Testament known as the Septuagint? What, what do you think he would think about that? Because he was living at that time. Matthew 22, verses 31 through 32. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That phrase, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that came out of Exodus chapter 3. Guess what? That was a translation text. That came out of the Septuagint. Christ didn't speak in Hebrew. This right here was a translated text from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek, and that's what the original author here penned down. 
And so Christ spoke and conversed out of the Septuagint, a translation. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And this was Christ. This is what Christ said. Christ said it's going to be preached everywhere. How would that happen? How would that happen except there was a translation and a way to translate the Bible? The Old Testament, as we talked about, was Hebrew and Aramaic, and and the New Testament was Greek. He knew that not everyone in this world was going to speak Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And so because of that, there were translations made. So as we wrap up, to determine the authenticity and trustworthiness of the New Testament, first off, do we have a complete text that is original and authentic? And I think that we've established there's 66,000 texts, 100% we know that what we have is authentic. So yes, we have that. Do we have a translation process that works and is accurate? We've seen that, that there are countless dictionaries that you can go and look at. You can look at commentaries and you can find out that yes we have a great translation process that represents the accurate original word that was pinned down by the original writer so yes we have that so this phrase the bible has changed through the years so what we have isn't true to the original after this sermon and this study i hope that you can see that 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 statement can't shouldn't even see the light of day because we have all kinds of evidence all kind of things that we can go back and we can look at to validate uh, what we have in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. So this is a complete misquoted, misrepresented word, misrepresented phrase. The Bible here is completely authentic, completely original to what the original authors pinned down. And I hope that, that as we leave here, that if people bring that statement up, I hope that you can show that there's false, that that, that entire phrase, that entire statement is false. We're going to offer an invitation at this time. Uh, if, if after this, if after we uh, close it, if you have any questions about any of this, please let me know, and I'll, hopefully I can answer that for you. Um, we're going to offer this invitation at this time, and if you have any need that the church can help you with this afternoon, please come as we stand and sing.